This evening, we tackle a biopic of one of the most famous items of clothing in the Roman Empire. We stumble across two musical cinematic legends that have somehow been hiding their soul collaboration under a rock all these years. And we jump forward in time to tackle a new version of an old rump. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. I said welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. Excuse me. All right, apparently we have no music. <laughs> we can sing. <laughs> we can sing, yes, we can sing. That is weird. Okay, anyway. Hello and welcome to Sunshine Radio. We are broadcasting from a sweltering studio at St. Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. My name is Tosin and with me in the studio today is the sole celluloid archaeologist with me, Sharon. Hello. How are you doing, Sharon? All right, thank you. You've already heard Sharon and now I introduce you to her. Yeah, so, so I'm with Tosin. Yeah, you ever seen this TV show, Time Team? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, they're with, uh, what's his name? Tony, Tony Robinson. Tony's Robinson, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always want to call him Baldrick. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I actually struck with me when I was thinking that what we do on this show is kind of what they do on that show. You sort of like go di go digging, go find something from an old time, and then you sort of bring it up and go, ooh, check this out, oh, yeah. my word. And the most mundane items tell a big story. Yeah, they tell and a... And so these sort of films, are they are... They're, capture a moment in time doesn't they matter do. what film that what period they're set in yeah they do capture the moment in which they're you know yeah in which they were made they're a piece of archaeology you're right yeah it just struck me today i was like ooh, we're like celluloid archaeologists <laughs> uh, take that tony robinson so yeah as we you know here at sunshine radio i mean as i said we're in a sweltering studio and it's one of those days where you sort of look out of the window because usually most radio happens in a like in a box pretty much it's like in a box, but we have a a bit a bit of a cruel box because we have a box with a window, so you get to see outside and you go to go. Oh my word! I guess that's really nice. There's even a pond nearby that you can think, oh, we can go on a hangar. But no, we're in here. But we, at least, I mean, we're thinking about everybody in the hospital, and we're thinking that you guys must have it way worse, especially if you have a ward that has a window and you're looking out there, but you have to be in the hospital. So we're going to try and make it a little bit better for you sitting down here. And as you, as you said, being we're being cellular archaeologists, we're going to go back into movies before 1980, and run them over with like a fine tooth comb say what was great about them or what wasn't we usually have a a, a patient choice where we go into the hospital and we speak to a patient unfortunately today that isn't going to be happening because i went into our pet ward alveston and it was there's a word that they don't they do not like medical professions do not do not like saying in, it is a Q word. It is a Q word. You don't say the Q There's word. There's a Q word. So we're not allowed to say the Q word because if you say the Q word, all of a sudden it will no longer be Q. Yeah. So <laughs> let's just say that it was quite sedate. It was quite sedate when we went in there. There were actually quite a few beds that had nobody in them, which I kind of think of a hospital as a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing when you have... When you have empty beds, when you have like, okay, we have this, but there's not people in the hospital. I think that's a good thing. Uh, so um, uh, it meant that there were uh, most of the people who were there were actually taking a nap and were asleep. So I just thought, okay, cool. We'll leave them. We'll come out of there. Uh, but anyway, what have you been up to recently, Sharon? Well, in this, in this stifling heat, I've actually been working all week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a gardener by profession now. <laughs> and for the last three years, I've been a gardener. 
And this is the one summer I think we really struggled with mm. the heat. And we have been in gardens where there's no shade. So from nine in the morning when we normally start, because we like to give people time to get up. Because <laughs> we found when we used to start work at eight, we'd get people in their pyjamas still. And yeah. it's not good when you, <laughs> <laughs> when you have to knock on the door and people will come out and they go, oh, you're here already. So, yeah, we start work at nine now. But, yeah, we finish work sort of between half past three and four generally. And so this week we have been in the full glare of the sun all day. <laughs> So when I come in, I just sort of lie down in the shade. The <laughs> just lie down, lie down in the shade, run a really, really cold bath and hide. Yeah, just go like, oh, no sun please for me this week. <laughs> <laughs> all right cool yeah i'll tell you i've been doing so i've been looking up this thing there's a hashtag on twitter now if you don't know what twitter is it's one of these new social media things and the hashtag they that's come up by from empire movie magazine which is fave also fav so fave seven films so fave the number seven then films and it so it's they started or just sort of said oh um what do you oh, Tell us what your face seven films are using this hashtag. It went big and all over the world. People have been like sending in, or just like, oh, this is my favorite seven films. And I've been thinking about that. And I'm, I know what I'll put as number one. But after that, I'm like, I don't have a clue what, what my favorite seven films would be. I can't put them in order. I've, I'll probably think of seven, but I couldn't put them in an order. Well, so if like one was your favorite, I couldn't, I don't, I'd struggle with that. Well, I, I know, I know, I know that, I know hands down the Blues Brothers will be on the list yeah. for me. The Blues Brothers is on that list. And, then, and after that, I'm like, hmm, I don't know. See, I'd have like Room of the View, Strictly Ballroom. I'd have all those. They'd be on there. Mm-hmm. But what'd be number one? I'd have Harvey on there, of course. Rebecca I'd have on there. Yeah. So I've got four already. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd have, I think I'd have Shawshank Redemption on there. I think I'd have A Letter to Three Wives on there. But yeah, but it's it's actually one of those things I was thinking. I was like, "Ooh, I'm gonna." Actually, I can't think of it. I, it's like yeah, try, it's trying to trying to sift sift through everything and bring up like seven and all that kind of stuff. It's quite weird. Which, but it makes me think because today Greece, I'd probably have on mine. You'd have Greece. Yeah. Ah, okay. Because today is kind of like a Sharon special, pretty much. Yeah. It's a bit because these are essentially films that you have said, "Oh yeah, 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 really like this film." And so it's almost kind of like you bringing like Sharon's favorite films. But you're going to take us through, um, first of all, you're going to take us through a bona fide classic, you, which yeah. you say, this is a bona fide classic, and you love it, you think it's a great film. Then you're going to go into a hidden gem, right? Yes. So a film, which I, I think you've picked the cracker today, because I think this is truly, truly hidden, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, see, I, I'm surprised that people don't know it, but they don't. I yeah. talk to people, I say, oh, well, I love this film, and they just never heard of it. Yeah. And it I, surprises me. So yeah, much. but that's, that's I, I was actually quite shocked when I looked up this film, I was like, what the, who's in it? How? How are they in it? And I've never heard of this yeah. film. How do you not know this film? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so you go to The Hidden Gem, which is a film that not many people know, but you say it deserves its place amongst the pantheon of great films. And finally, today, we are going to have uh, an exception to the rule, which is a film that, or oh, this week I've picked it, a film that has been made after 1980, but we say this actually just stands at any point in time with any of these films. So... The first film that we're going to be talking along about today, would you like to tell me what it is, Sharon? Yes, this is the first of my 50s double bill. And the first one is The Robe, which is a 1953 film starring a young Richard Burton and an even younger Gene Simmons. Ooh, The Robe. All right, cool. Hang on a second. I'm going to try something here because our music playing thing seems to have just sort of like done something weird. But I'm going to try and play it. It's lost its voice. But if this doesn't work, I'm going to do something that's really, really kind of like, you know, to borrow a phrase, ghetto. 
<laughs> because it's not the way it should hey, work. we live but in it, a ghetto island, after yeah. all. Oh yes, we do. According to the head of Ofsted, or the the former, former Ofsted. the former head of Ofsted. <laughs> That'll teach him. That'll teach call him. Call names. it call it the island a ghetto. <laughs> Shows you the power that we have. All right, cool. So yeah, yeah, we are having we we are having issues, and this the the music just isn't playing out there. So I'm gonna play the music through the computer. Now, this might work or might not work, but this should be the soundtrack to the rope. Yes, and that was a, that actually kind of worked quite well, didn't it? So, but okay, obviously this is one of those things that people always say is bad on radio, where you're trying to describe something visual that happened. So we, our computer here, has decided to not play any music. So what we had to do is play that through another computer and just hold the microphone very closely to that computer. I'm surprised it worked as well as it did. It's like going back to my youth when I used to record the charts show. I used to hold the microphone next to the radio. <laughs> you see, the old ways, the old ways always work. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what new technology you're going to come up with. If you just hold the microphone up to a speaker and record right off there, it's still the same it's old still stuff. The same. You just got to remember to hit the pause button at the right place <laughs> <laughs> before someone starts talking. Yeah, because you don't, you know, we don't want that. We don't want the presenter. We don't want the presenter talking over the song music. Oh, for goodness sake. How are we supposed to tape the radio when you do that? <laughs> so that's um, the robe. The, the So tell us, what is the robe? The robe, it falls into that category of films that are made throughout the the 50s and into the beginning of the 60s where they're like a biblical film yep this is based on it's their films not directly about jesus but around about the life of jesus so yeah. he isn't the main character but it's like they're like christian films of their era so you'd put these this film in the bracket with things like ben-hur obviously jesus appears in ben-hur but it's not about jesus yeah it's about the judah ben-hur and like quo Vardis. again jesus is in it but he don't he doesn't speak to camera. He, it's all about the centurion yeah. and things like Demetrius and the gladiator. Demetrius has an experience with Christ, but again, it's not about Jesus. So because these that, are films. That's, that's a direct um, sequel to this, isn't it? Yeah, Demetrius and the gladiator, yeah. Victor Mature. 
How, how does that, that that the timeline is going to be a bit weird, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> All right. Cool. Okay. Cool. Never mind. Okay. I'll explain. I guess we'll explain how that. How, but so yeah, this is the robe. Okay. And it was based on a but yeah novel of the nineteen fifties where they were very very popular these type of films. So yeah, this is this falls into that category. And so it's a story about a Roman tribune who's called Marcellus, mm-hmm. who is played by Richard Burton. This is to, he's fresh from well he's just appeared he's all sort of burst onto the scene. This is before we know him has his like his roistering drinking woman like before Elizabeth Taylor yeah sort of you know completely messed up his life <laughs> <laughs> when he was known as this powerhouse young actor. So he's just burst onto the scene and he was in like My Cousin Rachel and other things that he went, people sort of went wow who is this guy so this is like the robe this is like a big showpiece for him yeah so he plays this Roman tribune Marcellus who is sent to. Judea, the province of Judea, and whilst there, he has to oversee a crucifixion of an uppity local mm. who happens to be Jesus. And whilst he's at the foot of the cross, he um, is larking around with his Roman pals, and they decide that they're going to gamble for his clothes. Yeah, because he's got this nice robe that's been put on him, and he's got other his linen garments so they decide to cast lots yeah anyone who knows the, the bible will know that sort of yeah it, it is it is one of those big so like iconic things there's been pictures no. done of it of the roman the roman soldiers so casting lots for jesus's clothes, clothes yeah. yeah and that they weren't torn so they're all in one piece so they were worth something so yeah and he is the one who wins that throw he wins that lot so Marcellus wins the robe of Jesus. Yeah. And um, it's got his blood on it. <laughs> and so he takes this robe away and he becomes almost obsessed with this robe and with the events of what he's witnessed. And he meets, he's met this former slave called Demetrius, who you first meet him, he's like railing against being a slave. He's fighting. That, that's the victim mature. Victor mature character. Yeah. He's a really angry broken you know, cross guy and then he encounters him and he's completely transformed and he's been tra- his life has been changed by oh, so, wait, so who Jesus. encounters who so Marcellus meets up with Demetrius he meets him before when he's enslaved and in chains oh, okay gotcha and then he meets him after the crucifixion where he finds out that Demetrius has become a follower of Jesus yeah and Demetrius is broken because of what he's witnessed and then he's like victor triumphant because of the resurrection and so Marcellus meets him and he can't understand what's going on with this man's life he saw this angry guy and now he's like this completely changed man yeah so he becomes more and more curious about what's happened and he becomes more obsessed about the robe and it takes on this bigger than it is it's not just a piece of cloth anymore it becomes significant of symbolic of, of everything yeah and through he re-meets his childhood friend Diana who is played by Jean Simmons who becomes the love of his life and she is a ward of Caligula. And so he goes back to Rome, to Diana and to Caligula. The, and he, the emperor at the time. He was the emperor at the time. What, was Caligula I, the emperor at the time? I don't think he was, but according to the film, he is. <laughs> okay, okay. So a, a little bit of Hollywood fudging. <laughs> a little bit of, oh, he's a nasty emperor. Oh, he'll do. <laughs> and we've heard of him. <laughs> yeah, we've heard of him, yeah, yeah. yeah fudging, who really cares? <laughs> what, what's, what's one emperor? Yeah. <laughs> compared to another one so then then Caligula himself becomes obsessed with the robe he thinks that it has its power so he's determined to get this robe because he thinks it imparts magical powers on people yes or on the holder of it and as he's exploring what's going on then Marcellus and Diana both sort of become Christians and they both explore what 
the robe means and what Jesus meant. And then they come into conflict with Caligula, who can't understand why they've decided to, to follow this madman from Judea. Yeah. And go against, because he believes he's like a demigod. That yeah, 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 Caligula had issues. So, and so uh, that's sort of basically the story. And I'd, I'd, I'd think it's old enough that I can probably give you a spoiler at the end. Well, I think well, a lot of these films at the time, it did, it did turn out that Jesus is a good guy and everybody got to see, everybody essentially become a follower of Jesus, pretty yes, much. Yeah. yeah, so they became followers of Jesus. But at the end of this film, it's different for a lot of these um, films, is that both Marcellus and Diana are martyred at the end, but you don't actually see them die. Oh, wow. You see Caligula condemn them to death for their yep. faith basically and then you see them mounting a stair and as they're climbing the stair and you see all the people behind them they fade away and then you see them climbing into the heavens this blue sky ah, and the clouds and so, so you know they're martyred and you see them sort of going up to heaven basically and you see them looking at each other and smiling and going you know you know we've left the earth behind and we're going to somewhere better so it's one of those rare films where the actual heroes both die but you never see them die but you know that's what you know that that's what happens so yeah they've actually been martyred at the end and they're jolly happy about it (laughs) (laughs) okay that's that's, that's actually quite interesting because i know sean who couldn't be here today i know sean Sean always talks about this film and he loves this film and he talks the big thing that i think sean talks about and even on the poster of the film uh, if you go on and you see anything about this post, it just tells you, it tells you the first movie to be filmed in CinemaScope. Yes. I don't know what that means. Do, 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 do you have it, any idea of like what difference does it make to watching the I film? I think it's the width of the screen. You know, sometimes when you sit in the cinema now and the screen comes on and then suddenly you hear this like, and the the screen widens. Yeah, yeah. This uh, is the first sort of panoramic, this is the first sort of letterbox film. Okay. Because before then, most films were sort of more or less square. And this is when it first elongates it, so you've got a proper rectangle screen. It's a, it's like a wide screen in oh. effect. Yeah, because the poster. I'm looking at the poster now. It says the first motion picture in CinemaScope, yeah. the modern miracle you see without glasses. Yes. Yeah. Because you see, you know, this wide, wide screen. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the films around that time they ended up being quite painterly, almost like if you see a shot yes. from them or. Does this follow suit with that? Is it is it kind of like... Yeah, what? it's got these saturated colours. So you've got the reds are really red. Mm-hmm. And they're wearing these uniforms and you've got these sort of polished cuirasses where they're... That's those sort of leather tunics that, sh- that are sculpted to look like a man, look like he's a oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the, they're, they're like... They, it looks stunning. And I think legend has it that Carry On... Is it one of the Carry On films? I think it's Carry On Cleo. Yep. Sid James actually wore the cuirass that Richard Burton wore in the robe. <laughs> it's the same outfit that they borrowed from the studio. Is it bad? Is it bad that once you said Carry On and Sid James, I was like, okay, now I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly the outfit yeah. you're talking about. That Roman outfit, yeah. <laughs> the Roman outfit that makes it look as if, yeah, look at me. I've been at the I've gym. Got, look at these abs. Yeah, look check them out. Rippling. <laughs> and then it's got like this sort of, you've got the red tunic that just peaks just above the knee and you've got this. Oh, yeah, yeah. This sort of leather sort of skirt apron type thing that's supposed to protect you from swords and spears, but it looks like a nice skirt to everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite an iconic look. But yeah, Sid James wore the same outfit apparently. <laughs> Carry on, Cleo. <laughs> so okay, so now let's talk about the sequel, Demetrius and the Demetrius Gladiator. And just Gladiators. just a quick thing. So it's a sequel, but obviously the the so is it one of these sequels? where it actually takes place during the events of the first film. No, it follows on afterwards. So Demetrius 
has been converted. Yep. But then he's re- he escapes from his slavery, and then because he's his conscience, I think he goes back to his masters, and he's sold to the to the gladiator school, and so he becomes a gladiator, but he doesn't want to fight. Okay. Because of his. Christian because of beliefs. his because of his new beliefs. So I, it's been a while since I've seen Demetrius and the Gladiators, but I gather that there's this conflict between his sort of spirituality and his having to fight. Ooh. And the, so there's that conflict. That, that, because this is this is quite funny because it seems to it seems to to merge two different uh, two different genres that are making a bit of a comeback. Because I mean, yeah, yeah, because you know the whole I guess you could call it sort of like religious fiction. So yes. you could say, because it's it's so okay. We know that these things happened. It's it's historical. It's historical fiction, but historical because the guy who wrote the book, uh, Lloyd Douglas, he said that he he started thinking because obviously you always if you go to Sunday school you hear all these stories and you hear yeah. about and the soldiers cast lots for Jesus clothing and all that. Yeah. And he was he was like, what happened to the guy who actually won yeah, that rope? A lot of these stories yeah. are aren't they? The what if? So what about that guy? Yeah. So I mean, earlier, earlier was it this year or last year? We had it was this year around Easter. We risen. had Risen. Yes. Which was all about Joseph okay, Fiennes again, yeah. high budget, big glossy film. Yeah. About the resurrection. About the resurrection, which was all about okay. So how does this guy? Oh, they. There's a guy who's been told to go investigate and see if, yeah. where the heck this Jesus Jesus body's guy this Jesus guy's body is. Yeah. And um. And this is a story, an imagined story of what that guy found when he went to go find Jesus' body. And it's and also when you talk about the gladiator thing, I was like, you know, you have obviously gladiator. Gladiator. Yeah, yeah. gladiator, which was which sort of like hit a lot of those sort of marks. And it, yeah. it, it was one of the few films that was a bit successful at updating that whole sword and sandals epic thing. Yeah. Which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks because Ben Hur It's been remade, yeah. Has ben, been remade. Ben Hur has been remade and it's I, I was actually hoping to see it this week and then do something about it, but I I think it hasn't been released on the island yet. I don't think it's been released in the country yet. I don't think we've got it yet, no. Yeah, I don't think we, I don't think we've got it in the country yet. And um that so that's been remade. The big question you might ask yourself is why? Because <laughs> how do you? Yeah, because it's gonna. You can't help but compare it, can you? Well, it has exactly to, the same name. It has exactly yeah, the same story. Same story. Yeah, you're thinking if you're going to remake it, bring something new. And there's some things. And one of the films we'll talk about later. One of the films we'll talk about later. You could see that there is something new that they that they could bring to it. That they could yes. see that we could bring to it. But I'm not sure what new they can bring to Ben Hur. Apart from maybe getting a camera amongst the horses during the. During yeah, the, uh, the chariot race, but besides that, I'm like, yeah. I don't, I, I, and again, Ben Hur is one of those stories where it's supposed to be around the events of the cruise, yeah, of the Christ, yeah. but it's not. And and he sort of his life is touched, isn't it, by the by Jesus in the first film, and I think in the book, Jesus gives him water, isn't he, when he's a yeah. slave, and he gives yeah. him water, and that sort of he remembers him, and then you see Jesus later on when he witnesses, doesn't he, the the Sermon on the Mount or something. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to see from a distance. Yeah. But and his family become converted, don't they? Maybe that's it. But it'd be interesting to see how they, how Jesus features in the new Ben Hur. Oh, that maybe that's maybe they've realised that all of a sudden there's this sort of like renaissance for, for so religious fiction, and so they go, oh, we do Ben Hur. There's going to be a whole bunch of Christians who are going to go watch it. We're going to see it because I think we in this country, I think we don't tend to be up on the whole religious film or the religious books or the religious music but it is a huge market in it's america. a massive it's, it's it's only been a growing market over the last six seven years in america yeah. so i've got christian friends in america who don't read anything but christian books they don't listen to anything but christian music and they don't watch anything but other christian films or films that have got a certain 
morality code to them because yeah. American films they still make things with like this sort of morality code, and they, so it's a huge market. And I think finally Hollywood are going actually there's money to be made out yeah, of these religious. There's money people. to be made to be from pandering to these religious people. Mm, yeah. so I think I think they probably saw it through Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ was the big one. I think that made one. people sit back and go. Hundred million dollars? Yeah. <laughs> because, because nobody wanted to pay for that. Nobody wanted to no. pay for the Passion of the Christ. Nobody wanted to, and so Mel Gibson pretty much had to put up his own money to do it. And then once they saw how much more money he made after making the film, I think they were all like, "Psst, psst, there's dude, money. <laughs> there's money to be made there." I know we don't agree with what they think, but still they'll pay us if we make it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think we don't see it over here because they're not part of our culture, but there's the whole God's Not Dead films, which mm. have been huge in America, but unknown over here. Completely well, yeah, here. I think they, they've been they've been quite under the radar. And quite frankly, I have my issues with... Oh, I think probably some of them are some dreadful. <laughs> I have my issues with, with even, even though I am a Christian, I have my issues with things that just pander to that. And... Yes. and and it it's and like if you know, you've ever read a Christian book, then it's like <laughs> it's kind of and your friends. I mean, there are some good ones. There's one. There's a series called Mark of the Lion, oh, by, right. by a writer called Francine Rivers. I know that that, yeah. that does a, that pretty much does this, and it's essentially sort of historical fiction all around the time of when Christians were being fed to lions in yes. in ancient Rome, and. And those, I really, really like those. There was, there was a trilogy, Mark of the Lion, where I was like, okay. I remember reading this and going, this would make an awesome film. It would, because it shows different people, it shows the way they go about it, yeah. it shows, and, and I actually just thought this is, and I actually, and historically, I learned a lot about it, about what happened with the Germanic tribes at that time, and how, like, you know, the Romans went into Germany, and, yeah. you know, like, you know, it took some of the Germanic tribes because they were great fighters and made them gladiators and all that. And yeah, those would make a good one, but I think there's a lot of stuff. I think it's when it's pandering, and when it's, yes. when you know that I know what you mean. It's when you know that at the end of the film, everybody's hey. gonna become a friend of Christ. Yay! Yeah. You're all saved. Yeah. Hallelujah. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, that 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 just rubs you up the wrong way because I don't yeah. think that's life. No, I don't think it's life either. <laughs> uh, but I think this is this sort of sits with it at a different in a different age. So I think we can almost do like a compare contrast. Can't we? So the way they look at filmmaking today, yeah. and the way they did this filmmaking in the 1950s, mm-hmm. and I think they had a slightly more innocent approach to it in the 1950s. And I think this is one of those those films that has it's approached it with sincerity, I think, with not so much exploiting it, but they're trying to do something with a bit more sincerity. And so I quite like that almost like innocence about it, that um, it approaches a story and goes, you know, there's no cynicism in this film. I, th- I think I think is, you've 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 touched on it. You've touched on it like it's, it's trying to show a sincere quest that somebody goes through with this rope to try and find something. And how he sincerely finds something. Yeah. And from what you said, it doesn't sound as hackneyed as some of the other. No, stuff it's that full I've of seen. melodrama. Some of the scenes where he cut the robe is on him and he has his nightmare. He's like, "There's a robe, it's burning me," and he's got these real Richard Burton moments. <laughs> but you get the, the you get that the heart of the film is in the right place. <laughs> but I just wanted to give a nod to the director. It's directed by a guy called Henry Costa, who he directed one of my favourites, Harvey. Which oh yeah, again, it's got a lovely spirit to it. The film Harvey, but he also directed Richard Burton in one of his earlier films, My Cousin Rachel, which is a Daphne du Maurier adaptation, and he also adapted one that was we mentioned before, The Bishop's Wife. Oh yeah, which has also got like a slightly sort of religious connotation about an yes. angel that comes down at Christmas time. And Joe, I think, picked that a couple of Christmases ago. It's one of yeah, his favorite, one of his favorite film. Christmas movies. So yeah. this this director, he's got a sort of pedigree for making going, these sort of warm-hearted right. films. How many books did Daphne du Maurier write? About twelve. How many? Have they all been turned into films? 
Not all of them. Royal Britannia hasn't. <laughs> Mary Jane hasn't. The House oh. on the Strand hasn't. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it keeps coming up and going, oh, this is a Daphne du Maurier adaptation. Yeah. That's a Daphne She wrote a lot of short stories. So a lot of the films you see, like The Birds, was based on a short story that's only about 20 pages long. I think so is Don't Look and Now. And Don't Look Now it? is a short story. All right. And yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that will we'll, we'll come back later for a Daphne du Maurier special. <laughs> yeah. we'll going through the films of that have been made based on Daphne du Maurier things. We could try doing that with Stephen King, but then we'll be here all year. We'd never get through a show. We, we would <laughs> never get through a show. Never go anywhere. All right, cool. Thanks so much for that. Now, um, as I said, we're not do- going to be doing a patient choice today because thankfully there's hardly any patients Yay. in our in our uh, pet ward, Alveston. It's yeah, though it's I'm actually quite happy when I go there and I see empty beds. Um, yeah, but so we're going to skip straight ahead right past our patient choice and we're going to go on to our hidden gem. Now, this is a movie that this is a movie that um, it's you picked it. Yes, my the, 50s double bill. Your 50s double bill. It's called Young at Heart. Yes. And when I first when I first said I mixed it up with a David Lynch movie and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, Sharon picked a David Lynch movie. So and when I was trying to find That's some music not like her, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> David Lynch, Sharon, that doesn't really. Anyway, I mean, every, everybody has like, you know, eclectic taste. You can like anything. And so I started, when I started looking for it online, I was like, wait a second. No, that's wild at heart. Hang on, what film is this? And it wasn't until I started looking for the music that I realized that it couldn't. And even wild at heart couldn't be on this couldn't have been a one that you picked because we talk about films made after 1980 yeah. and well heart is after 1980s with nicholas cage laura dern so um and this film it really does seem to be a hidden gem it's a film starring doris day and frank sinatra yes. that i have never ever heard of it's a corker all right okay okay so before you talk us talk to us through this film and tell us what happens we're going to play a song from this film which I, I still can't believe that this. How do you, how does Sarang Sinatra and Doris Day sing a song and I don't know about it? But it's called "You, My Love" from the film, the 1954 film "Young at Heart." And it's coming any moment now. Trust me. I am only certain of 
Yes, so those were the unforgettable tones of Frank Sinatra and Doris Day singing You, My Love, from the 1954 hidden movie, Young at Heart. So, continue to blow my mind and tell me how it, what this film's about and how it is that I've never heard of it before. Well, it's a cracker, actually. But yes, it's, as you said, 1954, so just a year after The Robe. So, and it's truly is that they could have been shown together. <laughs> Uh, it's a film directed by Gordon Douglas, and as you say, it stars Doris Day and Frank Sinatra. And the, but the basic premise is it starts off about three sisters. You've got Doris Day, who's the youngest, called Laurie. Then you've got the middle sister, Elizabeth Fraser, who plays Amy. And the elder sister, Dorothy Malone, who's an absolute stunner, plays Fran. Now, the three of these sisters are all sort of in the film, hitting their sort of mid-twenties, okay. we say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they're probably a bit older than that. but And they're all single, and they all vow that they're going to be together forever. They're either going to... They all want to fall in love and get married at the same time, or they're, not, they're all going to stay together as single sisters. Single spinsters, yay. Yeah, they're just going to stick to one another. Because uh, they're all lamenting, you know, oh, I can't be, why can't we, you know, get married and stuff. Yeah. And then they're they're all a very musical family. Their father's like a teacher of music, he's like a professor. They all play different instruments: piano, flute, violin, all sorts of things. They're very musical family. Yeah. And a friend of their father's, who's a composer, comes to their house because he's working with their father. And he sort of bursts upon their life. His name is Alex, and he's a bit of a smoothie in that 50s mould. And he's played by an actor, Gig Young, who you will know from They Don't Shoot Horses, don't, they, they Shoot Horses, oh, don't Oh, yeah, they? he's the... He's yeah, the compare. He's the compare in They Don't yeah. Shoot Horses, yeah, isn't he? So wind the clock th- back th- to the th- mid-50s, and he's a real smoothie. I, th- I thought I recognised the name. I yeah. thought I recognised... When I saw Gig Young, I was like, mm, nah, never mind. Yeah. Th- yeah. So we did uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They a couple of weeks ago on the show. Um, yeah, great film. If you can find it, go watch that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he bursts onto the scene. He's this young, smooth, handsome composer. He's full of charm. He's full of verve and vigor. Yep. And he's musical. He's talented. Yeah. And so all of the th- all three sisters fall in love with him. There are two older sisters secretly, because one of them, Fran, has got a dull but steady boyfriend. <laughs> the, se- the second sister is sort of resolutely single even though the family plumber loves her to death but she doesn't see him he's like blind she's he's she can't see his good points we're going go for her need the plumber but she can't see him and she's just falls in love instantly with this this smoothie called alex, alex and then 
Doris Day, Laurie, she's the youngest one. She's the bubbly, bright, you know, giggly blonde girl. As and it would be if she, you have Doris Day in your Doris movie, Day you make her movie. the bubbly, bright one. Yeah. And that everyone loves. And yeah. he falls in love with her. So it's Alex and Lawrence. Like, oh, happy ever after. She's musical, he's musical. They love each other. They're both handsome. And, and then he writes his music and he needs to get an arranger in to, to help orchestrate it. So he can write it on the piano, but he can't write the different parts, like the strings. Or oh, yeah, gotcha. So, gotcha. He, and he, they, so he brings an arranger in to help orchestrate it so that it can be played on a big band. And that then comes in Barney Sloan. Played by world weary, cynical, sneery, dark, not as not this muscular, stunning guy, but Frank Sinatra. So he's got this charisma <laughs> so, in his so, own so, way. I just thinking Barney Sloan. That's just such Barney a. Sloan. That's just such a. I am the dude here, yeah. nay. <laughs> and you don't. The first time you see him, you hear this knock at the door. Yeah. And then Laurie Doris Day runs to the door, opens the door, and he's got his back to the door. He's got the grey suit, just slightly <laughs> scruffy. Oh, he's got the hat on the back of the head. And he turns around and he sort of takes a cigarette out of his mouth and he sort of puts his, pushes his hat a little back. And then they see each other and you're going, this is the hero of our film. Once <laughs> <laughs> oh, he said he had his back turned, I was like, okay, I can this totally see Sinatra. this. Yes. I can totally see he just turns around and is like, hey. And then basically... <laughs> He acts as witness. So he is one of these life's observers, Barney is. Mm -hmm. So he can immediately see that the older sister, even though she's going to get married to her steady but boring boyfriend, that she has got her eye on Um, Alex. Yeah. And she can see that Amy is breaking her heart over Alex, but won't say a word. Mm -hmm. And that Laurie is blind to everything about her. But he sees it all. And he sees it and recognises that Alex is a good guy, but basically shallow. Yep, and that but that Laurie, she's got more depth to her than than she'll be that she won't be as happy as she thinks she'll be with Alex. That she'll soon grow bored with her life with him, and so they get engaged and they plan their wedding. This is Alex and Laurie, Gig Young and Doris Day, and then Barney sort of says, "Why are you doing this? You know, you're making a horrible mistake if you marry him. You shouldn't marry him. You should marry me." <laughs> <laughs> and basically, they run away together. They elope. Yeah. And they leave everything behind and you see them living in this horrid little flat and he's working in a pub and they love each other but they're both they're sort of miserable. She misses her family and he can't believe that this beautiful, bright, wonderful woman would love him. Yeah. So he he underestimates. So um do you want me to carry on with the story? Well, no, do carry on, do carry on, because so I, think, I think I think this this film is actually even the the version of the song that we could find. You could it was a bit scratchy, yeah. and that's because it's about the only thing you can find. So I think that for some people, this might be the only the only connection with, to Young and Hard that they have. So go ahead, yeah, because so they might never actually get to watch it. So they, you see him playing in bars, and he sings some great songs. Um, it's not a musical as such. There's there's a purpose when they do. There are songs throughout the film, yeah. But there's a purpose for it. So because because they're musical, so obviously they're going to be singing. Yeah, if, they're going to be singing if he's a, an arranger and all that. Yeah. yeah. So you see him singing at a bar with everyone laughing and joking and not listening to him at all. But you see him playing great songs. And then Doris Day, they're at the beach party. So someone says, "Hey, I've got this new song. Do you want to see the words?" So someone puts the record on and she sings it for them. So they're at the beach party. So you get a few songs in there. But anyway, they're married, and then. They don't hear much about the family, and then they expect. So when Laurie ran away, ran away with Barney, she left a note saying, "This is why I've done it because Amy, you know, you love Alex and you really should be with Alex. Fran, you know, you know, I know what I'm breaking all of your hearts. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to let let Alex 
be with Amy and I'm going to go. Yeah. And so they they then get married, they go away, then they come back, they're invited back for Christmas. So they come in and then you see that because of the chaos they left behind them, that Fran's boring husband, she marries him, her boring husband becomes like a, a rock that she could depend on. Yeah. So that becomes like a, a good story. And then the Amy, that even though Laurie said, hey, you ran away yeah, ran away, so so yeah, so, so you can have, could Alex. have Alex. Yeah. She recognizes the goodness in Ernie because when everyone else went to pieces, Ernie, the plumber, yeah. stood up and said, "I oh, don't worry, I'll take charge, I'll organize everything." So, what? When Laurie ran away, it was on the day of her wedding. So there was the guests there. The oh, priest was there, she was supposed to get married to Alex. To get married to Alex. Yeah, because I was re- I was reading the synopsis of this film and it was getting a bit complicated. Yeah, so she's supposed to marry Alex and then. She has this conversation with Brian and then she just leaves. Yeah. And she leaves everyone. And then Ernie's the one who takes charge. Uh, that's everyone why else she doesn't go apart. back because, uh, okay, n- now yes. it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, they're all worried about what someone's going to say. They're going to hate them and because they've ruined everything. They All this money, this wedding was all planned and then she just left them on the altar. Mm-hmm. And so Ernie stands up and organises everything. He takes charge. And then Amy, sort of, her eyes are open. It's like, Ernie, you've been there the whole time. You're this amazing man. <laughs> okay, you're a plumber, but you're amazing. And then she sees that, actually, she sees that Alex is not for her. But because of what Laurie did, she was able to recognise what she really did want. Yeah. And then instead of yearning for what she couldn't have, she actually recognised what was close to hand. So she ends up getting engaged to Ernie. Mm-hmm. So when they come back, Vine then goes, oh, no, we did it for nothing. You know, we ran away. So there's no reason why Laurie couldn't have married Alex because it wasn't breaking Amy's heart because Amy ended up with Ernie. Yeah. And so Barney's then, because he's got this low self-esteem and he thinks he's not worth it, he attempts suicide on Christmas Eve. And he tries to um, drive into a... He drives in a blizzard and he crashes his car. Yeah. He turns off the windscreen wipers deliberately so that he can't see and then these headlights come and he crashes. And then Doris Day goes to his bedside and says, you know... I, I love you. I don't. I don't love Alex. You're the one I want, and you can't leave me now because I'm going to have a baby. Oh. You've got to live. Oh. And then you see the next bit. You see is where he's sitting playing that song, and because of you, my love. Yeah. And you hear this conversation where she's saying, "Oh, look, lightning! It's your dad," basically. And like this, and lightning is a nickname for the the kid, the baby. Yeah. Because they have this saying, you know that. Barney Sloan was always saying that, oh, you know, he's going to get struck by lightning one day. It's just his luck. He's got no luck. Yeah. And that his own luck is to be a lovely summer day and he's going to be the one who gets struck by lightning. Yeah. And then when he tries to commit suicide, Laurie says, you know, we, you know that only lightning can get you, that you can't be just killed in a road crash. Yeah. And he says, lightning can be created, you know. <laughs> Since, you know, I deliberately crashed my car. And so when she says, you know, you've got to live because I'm having a baby, that was their new course, you know, their... Oh, his new cause, his... his new reason to live. Yep. And, oh, and so they nicknamed the baby Lightning as it's his was that, the bolt of lightning that he needed to res- regenerate his life. Okay, uh, that's that's actually really, really cool because I was reading about it and, I was, and first of all, it sounds like, uh, well, quite frankly, Sinatra because he has, everybody knows him as a musical star. Yeah. But he had sort of like, almost an equally stellar film career. Yeah. And he wasn't kind of... Sure enough, they, he would sing quite a bit in movies, in it, but it wasn't kind of like Elvis because Elvis, when he was in his movies, Elvis had this desire to be a movie star. He wanted to act, but they just wouldn't let him and they kept giving him puff pieces where he wasn't allowed to do much besides stand there and sing in a Hawaiian shirt or something. Yeah. But Frank Sinatra got movies 
where he got to have depth to him and he yes, got to actually he got to properly act. He, he got to properly yeah. act and he got to I mean the, even the, things like from here to eternity. Yeah, well, he, he he won an Oscar. Pieces. Yeah. He won an Oscar so so Frank Sinatra has an Oscar for best supporting actor for from here to eternity. Yeah. Where and he and by the time this film was made, apparently he was just such a big star that people were like, put Frank Sinatra in your movie. And he was like, look, the last two movies I've been in, I think which were From Here to Eternity and one other one, he was like, look, my character's died. <laughs> my character's died at the end of the film. And, and he, he said, to me, I, don't want, I don't want this character to die because in the original, Barney dies. He dies, he yeah. crashes the car. Yeah, he yeah. crashes the car and then that's it, he dies. And, it, and quite frankly, and this is one of the few times, just reading through the synopsis, it's one of the few times that I'm happy that star power got its way. Yeah. Where he was like, I don't want the character to die. I don't think it was for any particular story reason. He just didn't want to ha- play yet another character who dies at the end of the movie. Yeah, he becomes, so, yeah. So, typecast. Yeah, so so they... Well, I think he could, at that time he could have done anything he wanted. Yeah. So they reworked the ending and they said, all right, cool, now this time we're going to do it so that, yeah, Barney survives and all that kind of stuff on Lightning and all that kind of stuff on You, My Love. And yeah. which... And that the You, My Love, the song is a theme because throughout the thing, she, um, Doris Day is trying to encourage him to write his own music and instead of arranging other people's music, but he's got the talent, write his own music. So he's trying to write this song and you see, you hear clips of this song throughout the film where he's trying to, to write it. And she's saying, you know, if you write it, you'll have a hit. Yeah. And then you'll be the big name. It won't be Alex, it'll be you. You'll be the name. And then he goes, I've tried to write, but, you know, nothing's happened. And so after this, he then writes this massive song, and it becomes "You, My Love." It's yeah, the, it's his like perfect song that he writes. Yeah, well, so I mean, I'm looking at this, and as you said, it's hard to find this film anywhere because yeah. it just seems, especially because you had at that time, even though it's not a musical, I think it is kind of like a backdoor musical in a way. Yes, you it, get them to sing, but not. There's no. There's. There's a reason for them singing, yeah, they're because they're composers, arrangers, yeah. or is singing in a bar. A bit like cabaret. Yeah. Yes. A bit like cabaret, like oh, oh, apart from one number in cabaret, all the numbers you hear are being performed in the club for an audience. Yes. That and, and they're conscious that they're not singing. They're not just like they're. It's, it's not something like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden everybody starts dancing. Yeah. But if, <laughs> but this is it, it's a Warner's musical as opposed to an MGM, and MGM ruled the musical roost at yes. that time. So it, it feels like almost that this has been, it's like, oh, NGM rules musicals in the 1950s, so forget about Warners. But and, and I, think it's, I think it's a shame because even the synopsis of it sounds like a, it sounds like a really good story. Yeah. It's, again, it's one of those films that it's a bit, there is, there's, there's a good heart in it, but then it's, there's a sweetness, but it is tempered by the cynicism, the, the cynicism of, of, of Frank's character and the fact that nothing, it does, things don't go well for him for a lot of the film. And when he is singing in a bar, no one's taken any notice. They're not listening at all. It's yeah. just him plonking away at the piano. We're going, that's Frank Sinatra singing at the piano. What are you doing? <laughs> you've got all the drunks and you've got all the these sort of loud, shrill women yeah. sort of ruining his performance. You're like, oh, what da? So it's not. Um, cloying in that way, but yeah. there's sentiment in it because it's Doris Day. <laughs> but, <laughs> it is, but it's a, I, I just yeah I just really rate this film. It just I, it always makes me happier when I see this film. Did you know it was a remake? No. Yeah, apparently it's a remake of a 1938 film called Four Daughters, 
Oh, right. What happened to the fourth daughter? I do not know. I do not know. It's kind of like, as mentioned earlier, the letter to three wives. Yes. That was based on the story that was originally called the letter to five wives. Oh, so they just got rid of a few wives. They got rid of two wives. <laughs> they, kind of, they, got, they kind of thought, nah, this is too long, too long. 90-minute movie, three wives. Yeah. Three wives. In the side. One, two, three. Yeah. It has a nice symmetry to it. Yeah, but it's, it's called Four Daughters. It was made in 1938. And it's it's a musical drama film. Uh, it seems, essentially, sounds like it's exactly the same story. Although they've changed the names of the sisters, they have the Lemp sisters: Emma, Thea, Kay, and Anne. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. These are Fran, Laurie, and Amy. Yeah. So it's 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 Tuttle. Also, they're Tuttle sisters. Yeah. This this, you know, I think. Oh, it's got Claude Rains in it. Oh. Yeah, this, and it's based and it's all based on a book called Sister Act. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The, the crazy world the funny things you find when we as uh, obviously celluloid archaeologists start digging we start digging into the history funny, of our film yeah the funny things you find the funny things you find so okay that's but speaking about remakes they, speaking about remakes we're now going to the section of the show where we talk about um, the exception to the rule where we talk about a film that was made after 1980 that was just as big that it was it's just as good as any one of these times and you were speaking about um, Frank Sinatra so yeah. I thought, okay, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra. How can I? And originally, I was looking for a Frank Sinatra movie that was made after 1980, but his last movie was actually 1980 itself. And okay, what was that? Oh, it was something with Faye Dunaway. I cannot remember the name of the okay. film. I cannot remember the. Well, it was a film with Faye Dunaway in it, and people said that that was a good film for him to end on. Yeah. Never heard of it before. Yet another hidden gem. <laughs> so, well, uh, so I think. But then I thought, oh, Frank Sinatra remake of a Frank Sinatra movie, Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Especially he was Danny Ocean. He was Danny he? Ocean, and uh, that was the first Rat Pack movie that he yeah. paid for with his own money. And it was pretty much him and his friends having fun. And because I also saw the news today that they they're continuing casting on a film called Ocean's Eight. Which is going to be get this a remake of Ocean's Eleven with an entirely female cast. Okay, they're doing that a lot lately, aren't they? They're trying they're to sort of feminize these. Yeah, female I th- roles. feminize a bit. I'm, I have issues with it because I think why don't you just come up with original stories? Are yes. you trying to say that we can't find any original stories for women and we have to go grab something that people already know? And then I mean, it yeah. makes it makes business sense, but I think it. I feel like. I feel like it kind of goes against the point that you might be trying to make. Yeah. That if you're saying there hasn't been enough, fil- there haven't been enough stuff for women, so we're going to take all the stuff for men. For <laughs> yeah, we're going to take the stuff for men, and we're just going to change everybody into a woman. It's, I, I have issues with that. Although the cast they're putting together is hard to argue with. They've got Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett good. playing the playing the sort of like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin roles, the George Clooney, Brad Pitt roles. And so with that, I just thought, oh yeah, Ocean's Eleven. That's a remake of a Frank Sinatra movie. And the new one is really good. The new Ocean's Eleven that they did was really, really good. And I'm going to play some music from it now. And this is, we'll talk about what the film's all about and what actually happens and all that kind of stuff. But I actually think that the music in this film is a big part of it. And the music of it does a, plays a massive part of setting the scene and letting you know what kind of jaunty romp you're in for, shall I say. So this is the, it's, it's just a track called SWAT Team Exit from the movie Ocean's Eleven, the remake starring George Clooney and Brad Pitt.
Yes, and that was SWAT Team Exit from the soundtrack of Ocean's Eleven. I actually can't remember what year it was made, but it was in the late noughties, I think. Yes, oh, no, it was, was the early. Was it early noughties? I can't remember. But that was directed by Steven Soderbergh with George Clooney. Uh, George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> George Clooney in the Danny Ocean role, which was originally played by Frank Sinatra. Brad Pitt as his second-hand man and... Funnily enough, Matt Damon as a third, so like the third build yeah. person. But essentially, as the name says, you have Ocean's Eleven. So you have Danny Ocean, who is a thief who gets out of um, gets out of jail. And then is I've never actually seen the original. I've never actually seen the Frank Sinatra version. So I have. I, I, I so I don't know how closely they stick to. I think the I think the basic strokes of the story are the same. Yeah, it's Vegas casinos, robbing a casino. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly how much they stick to it because I know that in this one he gets he comes out of jail and he wants to get back with his wife. But his wife is going out with this guy who runs a casino in runs a couple of casinos in Vegas, and. Essentially, with, with throughout the whole thing, trying to get his wife back, and with this guy, he decides that he's going to rob these guys' casinos. He's going to rob three of the biggest casinos in Vegas all on the same night. So he has to put together a team that's going to help him do it, which is where the eleven comes in, because it ends up with eleven people, and you, then and they sort of stack the eleven with what well, great actors. So you have like Don Cheadle, you've got Elliot Gould, as I said, man. You have Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck. <laughs> so like, and they. Oh, I can't remember what the name of the Chinese actor I think is. There is a Chinese actor. Yeah, who who does who is kind of like the wire work almost, isn't he? The what? Does he like do wire work? Doesn't he go dangling down on a wire? Well, he doesn't know. He he, he goes in a bin oh, essentially right. because he's like a contortionist. He's, he's contortionist and he's tidy. And they do this whole thing with the whole and it's about them trying to sort of rob these three casinos all in one night. And the film is just a romp. It is just a romp. Like you won't hear the scene that that's called SWAT Team Exit. The scene that where that piece of music comes from is just one of these wonderfully well cut together things where you find yourself just being carried along with it and before you know it the film's over you're like oh oh my word oh that's it oh my god yeah that was so that was so good and yeah and i I think it it does and it's also sort of like a testament to star power it's a kind of film that you watch and you it's hard to think of many other people besides george clooney who could have played the title role who could have had the gall to take on something like that was made famous by Frank Sinatra, yeah. for instance. They might have the goal to actually go, you know what, Frank Sinatra made this famous. I fancy having a go at it. I fancy actually... Having my own rat pack. Yeah, yeah, uh, having my own rat pack and building the whole thing in. And it's just like, and it just tells you George Clooney's charisma and his, and the way he just comes up and he, it's like, you know, you were talking about the shot in Young at Heart where, you know, the person, like the door opens and someone is standing back there and then they turn yeah. around and that George Clooney could pull He'd that off. He could do that, yeah. <laughs> he, he could do that. <laughs> he, he could totally pull that off. And it's, and, I think the film's great. The the back and forth between between him and the different members of the team and the plan that they come up with of how they're actually going to do the whole thing. It's just it's the kind of film that I feel the word romp was made for. And from what I understand, it's actually an improvement on the original film, which was a bit more the sort of rat pack guys larking around Vegas having a laugh. Yeah. I think it's more yes, of its time, it's all about them rather than the story. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um. Or there was no there was no Rat Pack, but I mean these guys they do come together and they do like a, they do a great job in the film. So, what do you remember of the original? I do remember the whole gathering of the clan almost. That yeah, Danny Ocean gets back. That instead of Julia Roberts as being like this strange wife, it's Angie Dickinson, and Ooh. she was often the 
the misses in these Rat Pack films, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. And yeah, you've got like Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and Andrew Lawford. I can't remember all the others in it, actually. But they were of that. Yeah. You can picture them, can't you? They're the sharp suits looking really, you know, just so. And that it's like that 60s Vegas, isn't it? Yeah, 60s Vegas in the original, yeah. Yeah, so it's has that glamour and slight edge of danger to it because you know but underneath it all there's probably the mafia there's the well, mafia and that's all the, that's the, all the money comes from yeah and that it is you know laundered money probably in some ways <laughs> yeah but yeah so you've got that that sort of edginess and that sort of stylishness but whether yeah I remember the sort of style rather than the content of the story more mm-hmm. but yeah they do yeah they, I think they're, I don't know if they they certainly have to, to try to do this heist where they, they're stealing from the, the casino yeah I think one of the main differences is that the the casinos that they had in the '60s one were actually real casinos that exist, and then they made up they made up casinos for the for the second one, which um, yeah. Either way, I just think I, I just think it just really really yeah. really works. And I think it's actually the thing is a lot of times when you see these fight heist movies, you have a plan that you think eh, that doesn't really hold together, and uh, or you might see coming from a mile off and all that. And the way it's revealed in the film is just so well done. It, I think first time you're watching it, you're kind of like, I don't know how they did that. I don't know. I don't know. Then when they reveal what happens and how they're going to get away with it, you're like, oh, that is Never. so slick. <laughs> oh, come on. And I, I think it's, it's quite well done. I, they did make two um, two sequels. Yes. I remember one of them is set in Italy, isn't it? Ocean's Twelve. So Ocean's Twelve, they go to Europe and all that kind of stuff. And I think Ocean's Twelve is a, is quite f- okay. Uh, Ocean's Twelve, I feel, is is more like you know what the what we said about the original Rat Pack mo- movie, yeah. where it was you know you get a group of people they come together and they do something and it's more about the people who are making the film yeah. having fun than it is about any story or anything about yeah. whether you are actually going to get anything from this. It's slightly more self-indulgent, isn't it? It is. And I think Ocean's 12 is very self-indulgent. I think I think Ocean's 12 is very self-indulgent. I think they channel the spirit of the Rat Pack in that they do get to the point where they're like, they're, they're like, yeah, check it out. It's us. Oh, look, it's George Clooney. It's Brad Pitt. It's Matt Damon. We're in Italy. It's wonderful. We had a great time. Quite a lot of cameos, if I remember. Isn't Bruce Willis like a running gag about <laughs> everyone telling him about when they worked out in Sixth Sense that he was dead or something? Well, no, no, it's... Spoiler! Uh-oh. <laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, no, about the, Julia Roberts expecting twins, it's like the, there's these gags running well, through. Well, the, the 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 main gag is the fact that everybody. Well, the main gag that they have in it is that everybody keeps looking at Julia Roberts, who plays Tess, uh, Danny Ocean's Tess, Tess Ocean, Danny Ocean's wife. So they keep looking at Julia Roberts and he's like, has anybody ever told Tess that she looks like? And they go, nah, 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 don't, don't mention it to her. So has anybody ever told her that she, she looks like? Nah, 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 nah. And then the big gag which comes, which comes part of their heist is that they say, Tess looks like an actress called Julia Roberts. She looks exactly like an actress called Julia Roberts. Obviously, and she's being played by Julia Roberts. So there's a bit where they go to a, they go to a place and then they're trying to do, and then Bruce Willis shows up and he, he knows Julia Roberts. So it gets really weird and yeah. it gets really kind of like messed up and indulgent. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and in the end, it's, I think the funny thing is that where Ocean's Eleven, the first film, was all about how slick they were and how everything came together and how like you know and how you're like oh my word that's clever oceans 12 every single plan they make is a mess yeah it just it just the way you actually look at it at the end of it some might say the film itself is a mess but at the end of it every single plan they make doesn't work 
and at the what actually comes when you watch the film, you realize, hang on a second, that that that, that that's weird. And so, <laughs> Ocean's Twelve is it's a bit of a curio. I think I think there's some funny bits in it, but there's some bits in it where I just think, what the heck was that? What was that all about? Yeah. yeah. And doesn't John Cheadle have a really strange accent in it? <laughs> I seem to remember him the, trying to be like a cockney. Don Cheadle, the Cheadle plays a character called Basher. Who is supposed to be a Cockney, and so Don Cheadle has this Cockney accent, which a lot of people slate him for, and they say that it brings back the days of Dick Van Dyke yeah. in Mary Poppins. So it's and it's it, I think it's funny. <laughs> I, I I think it's funny. Of uh, I'm, I'm not sure it's as bad as people try and make it out to be. I'm not sure it's as bad as, but it it is it is really funny and it's really random why <laughs> why don't you do why he's, because yeah. apparently he showed up and he was like yeah i want to place as a cockney and they were like mm, okay okay <laughs> like, okay we, we don't care <laughs> so it's like so yeah it's so oh yeah don't you there with a cockney accent but then when they made oceans 13 i felt like that was like a return to form they they go back to vegas there's a whole kind of thing they had al pacino in there as the bad guy and i felt that that was more like the first film yeah, it was more like spirit of the, it was it was more the spirit of the first film yeah. the, the second one is really really a mess and it does feel like a whole bunch of guys having the, like having yeah. a private joke and they're going oh hey, this is going to be really we'll really funny it, yeah. this is going to be great this is going to be great this is going to be great and then they release it to the world and they realize oh nobody else gets the joke <laughs> so i remember watching it with a friend and we looked at each other halfway through going are you enjoying this? Because it just felt like they were having a lark. Yeah, but if, we were just like spectators. Yeah, it really did feel like the guys who were making Ocean's 12 were having an absolute blast and nobody was along for the ride. <laughs> it, it was like, it was... It was they're, it, they're it's, having uh, fun, we're just going to watch. In some ways, it's one of the biggest you had to be there movies. Yeah. Like, oh, don't you, oh, no, you had to be there. We only spent millions of pounds. Yeah. You just had to spend like all your money to come watch this film. But yeah, we you had to be there. So, <laughs> so yeah, but Ocean's Eleven, the first one... Stand out, yeah. Stand out. Stand out, it is just such a slick movie. It's... It's it has some substance to it, but it's flashy, it's slick, it's done, and it's like Steven Soderbergh, I think, at the height of his powers because he had Steven Soderbergh had like a patch where it just seemed like almost everything he did was just awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this was right in the middle of that patch, and then shortly afterwards, he was like, "Right, I'm retiring." <laughs> like, stopped being good. It's like it's like no, it's never going to get better than that, so I'm going to retire. Yeah, I just call it quits on my head. All right, cool. Um. <laughs> So yeah, Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven, go track it down. That's about all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please get well soon, get home, listen to your doctors, and remember that as always, as we say on this show, they, they don't, don't make them like they used to. to. See you guys next week. You're listening to Sunshine Radio.